You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which Yahweh the God of your fathers has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out, that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north, and you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before Yahweh our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of Yahweh is their heritage, and Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses the servant of Yahweh gave them. So the men arose and went. And Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land, and write a description, and return to me. And I will cast lots for you here before Yahweh in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land, and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before Yahweh, and there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. The lot of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up, and the territory allotted to it fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. On the north side their boundary began at the Jordan, Then the boundary goes up to the shoulder north of Jericho, then up through the hill country westward, and it ends at the wilderness of Beth-Avon. From there the boundary passes along southward in the direction of Luz to the shoulder of Luz, that is, Bethel. Then the boundary goes down to Adaroth-Adar on the mountain that lies south of lower Beth-Horon. Then the boundary goes in another direction, turning on the western side southward from the mountain that lies to the south opposite Beth-Horon and it ends at Kiriath Baal, that is, Kiriath Jerim, a city belonging to the people of Judah. This forms the western side, and the southern side begins at the outskirts of Kiriath Jerim, and the boundary goes from there to Ephron, to the spring of the waters of Naphtoah. Then the boundary goes down to the border of the mountain that overlooks the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is at the north end of the valley of Rephaim. And it then goes down the valley of Hinnom, south of the shoulder of the Jebusites, and downward to Enrogel. Then it bends in a northerly direction, going on to Enshemesh, and from there goes to Geliloth, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim. Then it goes down to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben, and passing on to the north of the shoulder of Beth Arabah, it goes down to the Arabah. Then the boundary passes on to the north of the shoulder of Beth Hogla, and the boundary ends at the northern bay of the Salt Sea at the south end of the Jordan. This is the southern border. The Jordan forms its boundary on the eastern side. 
This is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin, according to their clans, boundary by boundary all around. Now the cities of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to their clans, were Jericho, Bethogla, Emek-Keziz, Beth-Arabah, Zemaraim, Bethel, Avim, Para, Ophrah, Shephar-Ammonai, Ophni, Geba, twelve cities with their villages, Gibeon, Ramah, Beeroth, Mizpah, Shepharah, Mozah, Rechem, Erpil, Tarala, Zela, Halef, Jabus, that is Jerusalem, Gibeah, and Kirith Jerem, fourteen cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin according to its clans. The second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the people of Simeon according to their clans. And their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. And they had for their inheritance Beersheba, Sheba, Malada, Hazar Shual, Bala, Ezem, El Tolad, Bethul, Horma, Ziklag, Beth Markobath, Hazar Susa, Beth Lebaoth, and Sheruhen, thirteen cities with their villages. Ain, Ramon, Ether, and Ashan, four cities with their villages, together with all the villages around these cities as far as Baalath Bear, Ramah of the Negeb. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Simeon according to their clans. The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them. The people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. The third lot came up for the people of Zebulun according to their clans, and the territory of their inheritance reached as far as Sarid. Then their boundary goes up westward and on to Meril and touches Dabasheth, then the brook that is east of Jochnim from Sarid. It goes in the other direction eastward toward the sunrise to the boundary of Chisloth-Tabor. From there it goes to Dabarath, then up to Japhia. From there it passes along on the east toward the sunrise to Gath-Hefer, to Eth-Kazin, and going on to Rimon, it bends toward Nea. Then on the north, the boundary turns about to Hanathon, and it ends at the valley of Iftahel, and Katath, and Nahalal, Shimron, Idala, and Bethlehem, twelve cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the people of Zebulun, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. The fourth lot came out for Issachar, for the people of Issachar, according to their clans. Their territory included Jezreel, Chesaloth, Shunim, Hafaraim, Shion, Anaharath, Rabith, Kishion, Ebez, Remeth, En-Ganim, En-Hadah, Beth-Pazaz. The boundary also touches Tebor, Shahazumah, and Beth-Shemesh and its boundary ends at the Jordan, sixteen cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Issachar, according to their clans, the cities with their villages. The fifth lot came out for the tribe of the people of Asher, according to their clans. Their territory included Helkath, Hali, Baten, Akshaf, Alamalek, Ahmad, and Mishal. On the west it touches Carmel and Shehor Libneth. Then it turns eastward. It goes to Beth Dagon and touches Zebulun and the valley of Iftahel, northward to Beth Emek and Nail. Then it continues in the north to Kabul, Ebron, Rehob, Hamon, 
Kana, as far as Sidon the Great, then the boundary turns to Ramah, reaching to the fortified city of Tyre, then the boundary turns to Hosa, and it ends at the sea Mahalab, Akzib, Uma, Aphek, and Rehob, 22 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Asher, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. The sixth lot came out for the people of Naphtali, for the people of Naphtali, according to their clans, and their boundary ran from Helef, from the oak in Za'ananim, and Adami Nekeb, and Jabniel, as far as Lakum, and it ended at the Jordan. Then the boundary turns westward to Asnoth Tabor, and goes from there to Hakok, touching Zebulun at the south, and Asher on the west, and Judah on the east at the Jordan. The fortified cities are Zidim, Zer, Hamoth, Rakath, Chinnereth, Adama, Ramah, Hazor, Kadesh, Edre, En Hazor, Yiron, Migdal El, Horem, Beth Anath, and Beth Shemesh, nineteen cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Naphtali, according to their clans, the cities with their villages. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans, and the territory of its inheritance included Zorah, Eshtael, Irshemesh, Shalabim, Ajalon, Ithla, Elon, Timna, Ekron, Elteka, Gibbeton, Baalath, Jehud, Benebarak, Gathrimon, and Mejarkon, and Rakon, with the territory over against Joppa. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Lashem, and after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Lashem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of Yahweh, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 695 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, August 24th. 2023. That was a reading of Joshua chapters 18 to 19 in the Old Testament, talking about the allotments of the various tribes of Israel. Those tribes which had not already received their inheritance were now through the business of what all was apportioned to them and the casting of lots, interestingly enough. A very curious way to do it, isn't it? In this episode, we're going to be talking about the first GOP primary debates for the 2024 presidential race. The debate was held last night. Fox News hosted it. And I have some thoughts. I watched it with my family over some popcorn and chips and ice cream. I have some thoughts. I also have some thoughts on (laughs) Trump sitting down for an interview with Tucker Carlson that aired 
starting about five minutes before the debates among all the other candidates who were over at Fox News in the Ronald Reagan library. But before we get into any of that, any of this business of the 2024 presidential race and what is expected actually today, even in Georgia, regarding Donald Trump surrendering to authorities and getting his mugshot taken down in Georgia. Let's talk about Joshua chapter 18 to 19. Some thoughts on the reading for you. First up, let's note the capstone commentary for the whole business. Once it's all concluded is an inheritance is set aside, especially for Joshua. There is a special honor that is given to Joshua, which is not given to every man in Israel. He gets his own city, which is appropriate, which is fitting, it seems to me. Lest anyone suppose everybody should get exactly the same thing. One, that's not possible. Two, that's not how God has so ordered the universe. There is nothing in the text to suggest that everybody gets the same inheritance. Everybody gets the same portion. Everybody does get an inheritance. Everybody does get a portion. But lest we suppose there is favoritism among the tribes, for instance, this is all being handled by the casting of lots. And what is that to say? Consider Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of Yahweh. What that means is you may roll the dice. God decides what the outcome of the roll of the dice is. And that's basically what casting lots is. It's rolling a dice, somewhat like flipping a coin. You're not leaving it to random chance, but actually God will decide when you flip a coin, when you roll the dice, when you cast the lots, God decides. Not everything should be decided that way. But in this case, that's how the land is divvied up. And what does that protect against? It protects against any grumbling, murmuring of favoritism that would most assuredly creep in otherwise. We're going to divide up the land. We're going to cast lots. God can decide who's going to go where, which tribes, which clans are going to go where. But then even though everybody gets an inheritance, everybody gets a allotment Joshua gets his own city. And so for those who are radical egalitarians, who are favorably disposed toward socialistic redistribution of wealth, anytime they see an inequality between people, why does he get more? Why does this guy get less or nothing? Remember the parable of the talents that Jesus tells in the gospel accounts. The master in that story is... God. God gives different numbers of talents to three servants in that case. And in this case, God does not give an allotment to everybody that is so uniform. There is a whole city by the command of Yahweh. It's not just their idea like, oh, hey, we really appreciate what you've done as a gesture of appreciation to say, thank you. We got you this. And usually this is where in smaller organizations, a gift card, and uh, maybe a coffee mug, (laughs) world's best boss, or something like that would be awarded in a public ceremony. 
and there would be applause and, oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor, right? It's, a, it's my pleasure to serve all of you. You guys are great. No, no. As a token of our appreciation, because God told us to, here is the city that you asked for. We know you've been wanting this city for some time and, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday, et cetera, et cetera. That's pretty remarkable. That's pretty important to note in my view. But beyond that, what else is in the capstone that summarizes, that concludes the allotting of the land to the various tribes? It says, these are the inheritances, verse 51, that Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot. So who is distributing the inheritance? Is the answer God? Is the answer Joshua and Eleazar? Is the answer the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel? The answer is yes. All of the above. D, all of the above. And why I mention this, why I bring this out explicitly is because this is not pure democracy. This is not autocracy. This isn't despotism. This is not monarchy. This is not socialism or communism. This is patriarchy. This is actually, if you would take Osginus's interpretation, which I find myself very favorably disposed towards, Osginus would say this is a Republican form of of government. You have various people coming into positions of authority in this situation, humanly speaking, through various means, and it's going to be done in an orderly way, but then there is some level of leaving it to chance, and they're just all involved to deliver the report back to the respective tribes or to preside over these various tribes if they happen to get into some kind of discussion with each other, or there's some kind of a conflict or a dispute or whatever. It's almost like having poll watchers. It's like having moderators after a fashion. But how are the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes to be understood? Quite simply, this is patriarchy. The heads of the fathers' houses, for one, are identified with fathers' houses because you've got to pick, right? You can't just say, well, whichever, right? That's chaos. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. Which do you prefer, your father's house or your mother's house? No, no, no. It's father's houses. That's how we're going to organize here. Who are the heads of the father's houses? Not in a single solitary instance that I know of in the biblical text is the head of the father's house of a tribe, of a clan, of a what have you, a woman. This is not matriarchy. It's not radical egalitarianism. This is patriarchy. That is father rule. This is the men who are preeminent within a father's house, within a clan, within the tribe, presiding over this business. You may not like it. You may feel uncomfortable with it. It may seem foreign to you. You may have all kinds of questions as to how is that fair. But again, going back to what is commanded by God respecting Joshua. Joshua is the one who is leading this people 
directing these people, commanding these people, commanded himself to be strong and courageous, be very strong, very courageous. Have I not commanded you? God says to him. And the answer is yes. It's a rhetorical question. Joshua, for presiding over, providing and protecting, humanly speaking, under God, by God's blessing, by God's direction, by God's command, faithfully and well, is rewarded with a greater portion of territory and land. And he gets the first pick. As you go down in levels of authority, the heads of the father's houses, over the clans, over the tribes, it's the same principle. Someone needs to have authority. Someone needs to make decisions. Someone needs to moderate disputes. Someone needs to judge when there is a conflict. He claims that so-and-so did such-and-such. Now we need to weigh the evidence and figure out what the consequence should be if the claim is true. And if the claim is false, we need to figure out what the consequence should be. Who is going to decide in cases where sin is alleged or a crime supposedly has been perpetrated and committed? All of that requires people in authority. And it needs to be the men who are in those positions of authority for one very simple reason. That's how God set it up. Ultimately, to reject patriarchy because, oh, this man is not perfect, and he said this, and men do that. They have a tendency towards such and such, blah, 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 blah. It's not fair. Well, hold on a second. You're introducing a whole lot of conditions that are foreign to the biblical account. The biblical account, the biblical model might be foreign to you, but your qualifications for whether it should be radical egalitarianism or complementarianism or whether you'll even give a passing thought to even a moderated and truncated and subdued, tamed version of patriarchy, all of those qualifications need to be held in a loose hand. You might have an opinion, but that doesn't mean you're entitled to your own facts with regards to this. Even just practically, from a common sense standpoint, if there's a dispute between, let's say, two men, two men have gotten into a fight and they are now looking for a judgment. If a man is presiding over that and that man has the respect and the command of other men who can enforce the ruling, then you may have a deterrence against chaotic violence when neither side is willing or eager to accept the ruling. A man in the position of judge executing judgment executing justice, a man in that position is able to speak much more quietly, much more calmly than a woman. A woman has to bluff and make herself appear much bigger and more threatening than she actually is objectively. And very often a woman in that kind of a position of authority has to depend on men to follow through with what she has judged needs to happen next. And yet, that's a role reversal. That speaks to a certain weakness of character in a people. If the men, see also, as we'll get into when we read Judges in the next book, see also Barak and Deborah. Yes, you have an example of a woman with authority over Israel. You have Deborah, who is a judge, but it's an indictment on the men, as exemplified in the character of Barak that Deborah 
is asked to go into battle with Barak, essentially to hold his hand. He's supposed to go up against the enemies of Israel. He says, I won't go up unless you go with me. And he's chided for that. That's not a proud moment. That's very unfortunate. That speaks to a certain weakness of character, a certain cowardice, a certain passivity, a certain unmanliness. We all know that. If there are exceptions where women seem to be wielding authority in the biblical text, study them closely. Don't just know that a woman was in authority once upon a time, and so we have precedent. If we're doing case law here, let's look at how that went, and let's look at the larger context in which those examples are set. But again, not to belabor that point so much, there's a goodness to God's design. There's a goodness to the way that God ordains these things. If it's just us arbitrarily deciding based on how we feel, whatever seems convenient, just wanting to try new things all the time, if it's just us doing that, then by all means, let's have disputes. Let's debate it out. Let's argue about it. Let's arm wrestle each other, whatever we got to do to decide how we're going to dole out authority and material wealth, land, inheritance. But if God set it up in such and such a way, and we reject that, we argue against that, we complain against that, we debate whether that can even work, at a certain point, we have to just face the fact that we are arguing with God's design, which is, in a way, to deny that his design was good, his purposes were good, his intentions were good. The egalitarians will try and make scriptures to work in favor of their wanting to empower women to be in authority over men, to teach men and to have authority over men. They will try to employ scripture to support that. But the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. I don't believe they are correct. They might seem correct, but if you actually parse out what it is that the verses they cite are saying and what the broader context is and what the broader consensus of the whole counsel of God is, their position cannot be sustained and it's not being read out of scripture, it's being read into scripture. It's eisegetical. There's a kind of wish-casting quality to those interpretations of such passages. Do women and men have equal value and worth intrinsically according to God just by virtue of being human beings created in God's image after his likeness for a purpose? Yes. Yes. Should we insist and demand that women be treated with respect and fairness, that they not be abused, that they not be oppressed? Yes, a hundred percent. But good luck trying to separate out what is actually oppressive towards women, what is actually disrespectful towards women, and what is said to be in our day. Let's look at this objectively. And if the Bible's not going to be our guide, then you're going to get chaos. God is not a God of chaos. God is a God of order. As Christians, the Bible has to be our final authority on this. And maybe if you just commit yourself to that in due time, you will come to appreciate and understand how this can work, why it should be the case. This should be what it is instead of radical egalitarianism, where we insist everybody gets the same thing. 
And if anybody gets more than anybody else, authority, power, material, possessions, attention, it's a travesty. You may come to realize how that can be not a true position and also it's for all our benefit and to God's glory. Moving on to some current events items though. I will play for you cut one. This is not quite totally fresh. It's about a week old. But breaking 911 on Twitter, also now known as X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Breaking 911 has this video published August 17th embedded in a write-up over at Not The Bee from Not The Bee staff. Donald Trump releases video calling for other Republicans to drop out of the race and embrace unity. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. And then we'll talk about it. Great polls just out. Leading by 40, 50, and even 60 points. Who expected that? I did. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, all very strong, but also leading Biden very big. The sanctimonious is crashing. Perhaps the party should come together. People should drop out of the race. We unify and we beat Biden and the Democrats. They should be easy to beat because our country has never been in worse condition than it is right now. Thank you. Okay. There you go. There is a suggestion. Maybe everybody else should drop out of the race and let me be the nominee. Of course, that's not going to happen anytime soon. If you watched the GOP debate on Fox News last night, you did not get at all the impression that the people on the debate stage are ready to drop out. A few of them, I would say, right out the gate, should. Just based on what I watched last night, I know there are other reasons why people run for president besides just actually getting the nomination. Even if they don't have a chance of getting the nomination, they might be able to affect what the strategy is moving forward, what the position of the Republican Party is moving forward. That is, I'm convinced, the reason several people are actually running. It's not because they expect to become president. It's because they want to inject one or another issue or concern into the menu for the Republican Party, for Republican voters. But Asa Hutchinson, for instance, doesn't have a chance. Chris Christie does not have a chance. There's zero likelihood of Chris Christie being the nominee. Asa Hutchinson, same story. Doug Burgum should drop out. Nikki Haley should drop out. I see a few strong contenders, and they should get more airtime as soon as possible. Any who are going to remain in the race should be getting more than 30 seconds at a time. But I see Vivek Ramaswamy. I see Ron DeSantis. I'm impressed by what I see with those two guys. Everybody else? Nah. Mike Pence? I don't see him going anywhere until he is forced to drop out. I think he will be in this race for quite some time, but it's basically those three guys who are going to have a even decent chance of getting into the double digits, staying in the double digits for any amount of time. The rest, no. 
Nope, not happening. But Trump here, about a week ago, suggested, based on the polling numbers, which show him leading significantly, and nobody can deny that, even if you debate how much exactly precisely he is leading in the polls. As Ben Shapiro has put it, there's no question that there is a strong, strong attachment among many Americans, many Republican voters, many Americans generally, there is a strong, strong attachment to Trump as an enduring political figure. And they're not going to doubt him. If he says we can win, they believe he can win. If he says we are going to make America great again, they believe him. If he says he's going to dismantle the deep state, they believe him. If he says he's going to beat these charges and our best days are yet to come, but we're in a bad spot right now, they believe him. And whether you like him, whether you hate him, whether you think he's fit for office, whether you think you would vote for him if he is the Republican nominee, regardless what you think about any of those questions, it's undeniable that he has a very, very strong, very committed base of supporters who won't accept anybody else. They were cheated in their view. They were cheated out of an additional four years of Trump being president in 2020. As a matter of fact, as they see it, we were all cheated. And those of us who don't believe that are kidding ourselves. We are brainwashed. We're sheep or we're liars or we're Republicans in name only or pseudo-conservatives. They think best case we are dupes and they are going to get Trump elected again despite our indifference or opposition, and we'll thank them in the end. We'll see. Or worst case scenario, if we're well-informed, they'll say, you're a traitor. They're that committed to Trump as a political figure, as a person. And again, just stepping back from how you feel, how I feel, what you think, what I think of Donald Trump as a person, as a candidate, whether we believe he is what's best for this country, whether we think he has a chance. People who voted for Trump, who want Trump to be president again, who believe that the 2020 election was stolen, they're going to be an enduring influence, an enduring factor in this race and in the United States of America for years and decades to come. No two ways about it. No doubt about it. What's interesting, though, too, is... We're starting to hear some admissions that things which two, three years ago were called fake news, misinformation, Russian misinformation more specifically, things which you couldn't say online or else you might have your posts taken down, you might have your content shadow banned, you might have your social media accounts suspended over trying to share or talk about or tell people are beginning to turn into reluctant admissions from the corporate media that, yes, in fact, actually, that, yeah, that's that checked out. Yeah, that, that's probably true. Okay, yep, it's probably true, but we're not sorry that we censored you and destroyed your credibility and called you all manner of nasty, ugly things to try and get people to not listen to you when you said it two or three years ago. We're starting to get some reluctant admissions. Say, for instance... Surprisingly, shockingly, over at CNN with 
Jake Tapper. Here's cut two. You can hear it from him yourself. Cut two of Jake Tapper over at CNN regarding Hunter Biden's international business deals. Take a listen. And and, uh, Kristen, uh, Glenn Kessler from The Washington Post uh, had a fact check about Joe Biden uh, from earlier this month, um, noting that Hunter Biden admitted in court in July that he was, in fact, paid substantial sums uh, from Chinese companies. Kessler wrote, Hunter Biden reported nearly $2.4 million in income in 2017 and $2.2 million in income in 2018, most of which came from Chinese or Ukrainian interests. But this, and this directly goes against what Joe Biden said in the debate in 2020 uh, with uh, Donald Trump. Take a listen. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about uh, what are you talking about? China. What you None of that is true. He made a fortune in Ukraine, in China, in Moscow, that is simply and various not other places. True. So it's from two different debates, but I mean, Trump was right. I mean, he did make a fortune from China, and Joe Biden was wrong. I don't know that he was lying about it. He might not have been told by Hunter, but this blind spot is a problem. It's a problem, one, because Republicans aren't going to let it go, that's for sure. But also, these problems are continuing through the legal system. It's not as though this is something that's been settled in other jurisdictions and Republicans are just harping on it. It is an ongoing thing in our courts. It's not going anywhere. This is a blind spot. Does it concern you as a Democrat? Well, I think dads have sometimes and parents sometimes have blind spots about their kids, for sure, and the president may be no exception. But nothing has tied the president to any of Hunter Biden's dealings. There's no whiff of him being involved or him being implicated in it. And uh, it's, you know, I think it's not something the voters care a lot about. All right, well, thanks to the panel. Okay, so at the last there, that was Andy Levin, former U.S. representative from Michigan. Yes, a Democrat. What he just said was not true. It wasn't true when Joe Biden said back in 2020 that... His son had not made a fortune. It was not, you know, it wasn't true that it wasn't true. Basically, what Joe Biden denied turns out to be, in actual fact, true. It wasn't Russian misinformation. What Trump was saying on the debate stage, which, oh, by the way, the moderators were trying so hard four years ago to get him to not be able to say, trying to interrupt him and talk over him and change the subject and fact check him live, jumping in, running interference for Joe Biden. It wasn't true that it wasn't true. And this thing that Andy Levin is saying on CNN is not true. It's not true that it's not true. And for that matter as well, where we have Kristen Soltis Anderson, Republican pollster and strategist, saying (laughs) after a fashion, the trouble here is that Republicans are not going to let it go, or she's suggesting that Republicans just need to let this go. That's not true either. It's a problem whether Republicans let it go or they don't let it go. It's a problem whether it's worked out in the legal system, in the courts, whether the House oversight committees look into it and release the documentation, the evidence to the public. It's a problem any way you slice it. It is a problem that Hunter Biden was taking money and that the emails on the laptop, which the New York Post story was written about implicate the big guy so-called and that it's alleged Joe Biden was on a great many calls and he was writing under pseudonymous email accounts. It's a problem regardless of whether the commentators in the corporate news media 
are willing to admit the extent to which it's a problem yet. And if in another two or three or four years, they finally say, oh yeah, yep, we were wrong here too. By that point, they'll have accomplished whatever they were hoping to accomplish, do the damage control, limit the exposure to risk for everybody connected so that the corrupt people who were aware and helped run interference, as many of them as possible, can get to higher ground and shield themselves. What then? This will continue to be a problem, just like it's going to be a factor for years and years to come that Obama was not the only issue. It was all of the folks who so easily believed and liked what he had to say and what he was doing, what he was proposing. It was a problem that continued and still continues that regardless whether Obama is president, his political machine and the constituents who gobbled up what he was serving are still of the same mindset, many of them. They're still convinced that he was a great guy, is a great guy. He did great things for the country. It's going to be a factor, and whatever you feel about Obama, whatever you feel about Trump, it's going to be a factor that the people who vote these presidents in continue on as they started for quite some time. It's going to be a factor when the people they put in place make decisions in keeping with their positions, their priorities, their principles. It's going to be a factor for years and years and years to come If Joe Biden actually is a corrupt politician who was taking bribes and he was extorting foreign businessmen and foreign public officials and foreign governments by way of his son Hunter, it's going to be a problem if lots of people have helped to keep that quiet and to make it possible and they get their cuts as well. They get their rewards as well. That's going to continue to be a problem for all of us as Americans and for the whole world. Everybody is affected by that. Another thing everyone is affected by is what is reportedly going to happen today. Petter Svab over at the Epoch Times has a piece up just this morning. Trump to surrender today in Georgia election case. Reportedly, the Fulton County Sheriff is going to take his mugshot. I've already seen Rudy Giuliani's mugshot. He went in yesterday. Trump will be allowed to go free on $200,000 bond, but he's going to be treated like anyone else, according to the sheriff. He's going to have a mugshot taken, and that mugshot is going to be released to the public. And why do we take mugshots of perpetrators in the first place anyways? So that people, in case they flee, will be able to identify them. Why is Trump's mugshot being taken in this case? so that you all will have that optic, you'll get to see that he was booked like any common criminal because this is a negative association game. And it's not new. This has been going on since he first came down the escalator at Trump Tower in New York City announcing that he was running for president. The media has been after him. The Republican and Democratic establishment, the establishment Forces on both sides of the aisle have been after him. This is just another brick in the wall. This is just the latest thing. But it affects everybody. It affects everybody for 
a former president of the United States of America to be booked at the Fulton County, Georgia jailhouse. It affects everybody for his mugshot to be taken and for that to be broadcast for all the world to see. That affects everybody. And I dare say, even if it looks like in the short term it benefits some, which it certainly does in the short term seem to benefit Joe Biden and the Democrats and the establishment forces on both sides of the aisle. It seems to benefit more moderate Republicans and everybody else who is running for president, running for the nomination on the Republican side. It seems to benefit some, but in the long run, in the medium term, I think we will find that this benefited exactly nobody, that this is not justice being served. This is politically motivated prosecution. This is partiality driven by animus. This is selfish ambition and vain conceit and a miscarriage of justice. I really think that. I I really do have significant criticisms for Donald Trump, but I also very much think the lion's share of concern and pearl clutching and hand-wringing and argumentation for us to do better, to be better, should be reserved for the folks who are trying to prosecute the leading Republican candidate for president, the former president of the United States of America, I think the lion's share of concern and vexation and frustration should be reserved for those folks. Or what? If it just so happened in the city of Greeley that there was a mayoral race and the incumbent presided over his chief opponent, his chief rival, most likely to win the mayor's race. If it's not the mayor who's currently in, it would be this guy presiding over that guy being arrested, thrown in jail for jaywalking. And you say, oh, this is a lot bigger of a deal than jaywalking. Undermining our democracy? Come on, let's be real. Let's be serious here. So many safeguards were taken out of effect, basically disabled in the 2020 election, supposedly due to COVID, but then which came first, the chicken or the egg here? Which is the chicken and which is the egg? What preceded COVID? And isn't this part of the reason why the lab leak theory was called fake news, MDM, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation in the first place, because the timing of COVID coinciding with the re-election potential of Donald Trump and an otherwise booming American economy and a changing geopolitical landscape because of a very different posture with regards to foreign relations, our enemies and our allies, was scaring the pants off of the establishment Republicans and Democrats here in the U.S. scaring the pants off of globalists around the world. Isn't it the case that the lab leak theory was dismissed as conspiracy theory because a lot of the people who were saying this seems as though it came from that Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China. It seems as though Dr. Fauci was giving money to this institution. It seems as though the Chinese military and the Chinese Communist Party government is involved in this, and they had a lot of reasons to regain face and save face by getting at Trump this way. 
a lot of the folks who were saying all that stuff were also saying, hey, why are we taking the safeties off? Why are we relaxing or else ignoring our conventional barriers to election cheating? And oh, by the way, the same people who were dismissed as conspiracy theorists for saying, it seems as though people are wanting to cheat this election <laughs> to get Trump out, to get Republicans out. Those same people, in many cases, have been called conspiracy theorists for saying that this COVID business is fishy. The number of deaths, the number of hospitalizations, how COVID was being treated, the lockdowns, the mandates, the safety and effectiveness of the vaccines. Yeah, the same people who question all of the above, in many cases, find themselves systematically barred from public discourse. Oh, by the way, I wanted to watch some clips of or the replay of Donald Trump sitting down with Tucker Carlson for an interview last night. This morning, I wanted to go find the video and I found some links, but I can't watch it because I am still barred from my Twitter account. I guess you can call it an X account. And that's poetic and ironic. You call this social media? I can't get on X. I can't get on the anti-social media platform formerly known as Twitter to watch the former president of the United States, who is the leading Republican contender for the party's nomination for 2024. I can't get on Twitter to watch the interview. And for what? Because I said to Chris Jolly Hale from Tennessee, with all due respect, what a retarded thing to say. That was March 26th of last year. I'm still in the midst of my so-called 12-hour suspension. When all of that is in the mix here, and the media is going to today make sure, make sure, make sure that every man, woman, and child on planet Earth sees the mugshot of Donald Trump. The bigger concern here is not that Donald Trump was questioning the certification of the election results in 2020 as to Joe Biden having won the victory. The bigger concern here is that the certification of those results was so questionable. That's the bigger concern here. The bigger concern is the censorship of the New York Post's story about the Hunter Biden laptop. The bigger concern here is the suppression of conservatives on Facebook, on Twitter, conservative news sources, conservative outlets on Google, on YouTube. Interestingly, when I go to YouTube, nothing shows up on the landing page at all right now. It's just blank. You've got to search. That's kind of weird. It's almost as if they don't want things to trend naturally. They want to have you do the search and then they'll have the algorithms there to feed you, just like Google does, credible sources first, aka corporate news media, aka commentators on the left. They have to throttle the debate for one side to make sure that their position remains credible, that the first to state his case seems correct. If they're the first to state their case, they want to make sure that they continue on seeming correct and that nobody cross-examines them. That's the really concerning thing here. Not that we would question what they're doing, but that they're doing so much that is questionable. Speaking of questionable, Paul Saka, August 17th, TheBlaze.com, 
not Trump, not Biden. Most attacked presidential candidate is DeSantis by far. Paul Saka writes, DeSantis has been the target of $20.2 million in negative independent expenditures, a quarter of all independent expenditures in the 2024 election cycle, according to the Washington Examiner. Nearly all of the negative independent expenditures against DeSantis came from the Trump-supporting super PAC, Make America Great Again, Incorporated. Just 45712 came from other groups. The Trump super PAC spent only $3.2 million on attack ads against Biden. Only $8.1 million of negative independent expenditures was directed towards Trump. Meanwhile, $9.2 million of negative placement expenditures were used against Biden. DeSantis was also the recipient of $11.2 million in positive independent expenditures, vastly outspending Biden's $1.7 million and Trump's $850,000. Nikki Haley was hit with $43,987 in negative independent expenditures. No money was spent on negative independent expenditures against the following presidential hopefuls. Tim Scott, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Vivek Ramaswamy, Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson. The FEC, that is the Federal Election Commission, defines independent expenditures as, and I quote, an independent expenditure is an expenditure for a communication that expressly advocates the election or defeat of a clearly identified candidate and which is not made in coordination with any candidate or their campaign or political party. Independent expenditures are not subject to any amount limitations, but may be subject to reporting requirements. Why this is relevant is DeSantis, regardless of what the polls say, DeSantis is clearly who Donald Trump is most worried about as far as a threat to his candidacy. Clearly. Joe Biden, you might say, is doing plenty enough to give himself a black eye in the eyes of voters. Just look at the economy. Just look at what's going on internationally. Look at what's going on in Ukraine with Russia. Joe Biden is doing quite enough to hoist himself by his own petard. But look at the rest of the Republican field. Trump is concerned about DeSantis. I, for one, am still a DeSantis guy. I know I'm talking with friends and family who follow these things. And I hear a lot of them saying, oh man, I like DeSantis, but his failure to launch has just been terrible. I don't see him making it. I hope that's not true. I still am a DeSantis guy. In the primaries, until he is no longer an option, he's my guy. He's competent. He's young. He's fresh. He's more disciplined. And give the guy some slack for being so harassed and so attacked. Oh, by the way, to the Trump people, the folks who are just diehard all day, every day, Trump for life, how is it that you can be so sympathetic to Trump when he is so attacked, but DeSantis, he's going to stand on his own? No, 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 no. I just wonder, just as an aside, I wonder if some of this wasn't how the people of Israel talked about Saul and David. When Saul was still king, but David was clearly rising up through the ranks because he was faithful, because he exhibited good character. He was doing good work, doing it very effectively. He was being very competent and he had the right principles. Saul had the kingdom taken away from him ultimately. And it was only after Saul was 
removed entirely from the equation that David became king over Israel. I wouldn't rule out the possibility, and I'm not hoping for this at all. I'm just telling you what I see. I'm just telling you what I am observing from my knowledge of scripture and my knowledge of history and paying attention to these things. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the radical left and the establishment forces on both sides of the aisle, if it looks like the prosecutions are not slowing Trump, aren't going to stop him, I wouldn't put it past a lot of them to either actively or passively facilitate his being killed. I wouldn't. I wouldn't rule that out. In fact, it's rather surprising that he has not gone the way of the Russian warlord who just died yesterday in a plane crash. And oh, by the way, can we talk about that for a moment? That guy stands up to Putin for all the world to see, for all the world to hear, and all is forgiven. Yes, yes, of course, of course it's not. Nobody believed that. Everybody expected that the man would end up dead in short order. It was just a question of how he would die and when he would die and where he would die. His plane goes down just yesterday. He was on the passenger list. There is a remote possibility that that's just coincidental. There was mechanical failure. Planes do crash, after all. These things do happen, after all. It might be a coincidence. Yeah, sure. But nobody, exactly nobody, who lives outside of Russia and outside the grasp of Vladimir Putin believes that this is a coincidence. A similar coincidence very easily could happen to Trump. And the very next day, the corporate news media and the establishment on both sides of the aisle would be bemoaning the tragic accident. And if you were to say, well, hey, wait a second, let's do a thorough investigation. There were a lot of people who wanted him gone out of the picture, neutralized, killed, dead. If you were to say, yeah, this looks like foul play, in the event that such a thing might happen, you would be censored online. You would be called a conspiracy theorist. You might even be labeled a dangerous insurrectionist. And again, 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 I'm not saying I hope for any of that. I'm just saying it's a distinct possibility. There is definitely a strong desire on the part of many to see Trump neutralized. If it so happens that he is neutralized, and not just that God in his sovereign jurisdiction allowed for the Trump presidency to come to a close in 2020, if it happened that God allowed Trump to be completely removed from the picture, it certainly appears as though DeSantis would be the front runner for the Republican ticket and that he would be the next president. And so let's not rule out his quality on account of technical difficulties with uh, Twitter launch, for instance, for example. Let's not do that. Let's also maybe learn from our mistake. Now, here's the thing. Trump campaigned against the squeaky clean, judge by appearances, status quo, that say, since the time of Nixon and Kennedy and their televised debates, has ruled the roost as far as who we elect, how we decide whether somebody looks presidential, would be a good commander-in-chief or governor or senator or congressman, et cetera, et cetera. Trump very effectively combated the old paradigm of what 
makes for good optics. And he did it by saying whatever he thought. Being honest, whether you liked what he honestly thought or you didn't, it was hard to deny he was being honest and saying what he thought and what a lot of other Americans, especially working class, especially flyover country Americans thought and still think. But in its own way, that is also judging by appearances. Remember again with Saul and David, Saul was head and shoulders taller than every other man in Israel. He looked the part. He looked presidential, you might say. He was a disaster. And God, not for no reason, took the kingdom away from Saul in due time. It wasn't right away. It wasn't immediately. But ultimately, Saul's murderous campaign to eliminate a rival in David, to literally straight up murder David, because people were talking very favorably of David's effectiveness, his competence, his faithfulness, his character. Ultimately, that led to not just the kingdom being taken away, but Saul losing his life. And that was God who orchestrated that. Yes, using human agents that were bad people. The ones who killed Saul, they were not good people. And yet God gave Saul into their hands, very clearly, to accomplish God's purpose. Similarly, when God sends the prophet Samuel to the household of Jesse, a man with a good number of sons, David is the one who is not invited to assemble before Samuel. He is sent out to tend the sheep, almost like he's been ruled out from the beginning or like there's a certain embarrassment about him, as in his father and his brothers are embarrassed of him. The way David is spoken to and related to when he comes to bring lunch to his brothers who are in the army of Israel, camped against the Philistines as Goliath is standing between the two armies, taunting them loudly for days, mocking Israel, mocking Saul, mocking the God of Israel. When David comes out, the way his brothers speak to him is not with so much deference and respect that you can definitely tell he's going to be the next king over Israel. You just watch. And yet, when God tells Samuel, judge not by appearances, and that God does not judge by appearances, but he is looking at the inner man of the heart, who ends up being the next king over Israel. It's not the guy with the great optics. That's told to us up front. It's the guy with quality, with character, with competence, with faithfulness in having tended his father's sheep and protected them and fed them, protecting them against predators who would come and try to take the sheep and kill and eat them. What did David do? He fought those lions and those bears and he killed them and he protected the sheep and he did his duty. He was faithful. And when he brought lunch to his brothers in the army of Israel, he was obeying his father. He was being faithful. He was being submissive to authority. And when he heard Goliath from Gath taunting Israel and Saul and God, again, he was faithful, not chiefly concerned with his own life, chiefly concerned with duty. And we need that. We need that energy. We need that as our priority moving forward, or else we are toast as a country. We are. The Babylon Bee is calling it right. (laughs) One of their posts on Instagram from a week ago, White House assures Americans, we're not a banana republic. We're a democratic banana republic. Yeah, that's about the sum of it. 
For a closing thought, though, consider with me the Merriam-Webster entry for moderator. A moderator is one, one who presides over an assembly meeting or discussion, such as the chairman of a discussion group, the nonpartisan presiding officer of a town meeting, the presiding officer of a Presbyterian governing body. Two, one who moderates or arbitrates. Three, a substance such as graphite used for slowing neutrons in a nuclear reactor. Let's focus on the first definition. One who presides over an assembly meeting or discussion. To preside over, let's say, a debate as a moderator does not mean that you control the debate, nor does he control the debate participants. A debate moderator is not there to control what you hear, to control how you feel, to control what you think, to control what they say, to control who they are. A debate moderator is supposed to maintain a certain level of order and to keep things flowing in a way that's fairly easy to follow. What I saw last night with the Fox News hosted at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library GOP primary debate, what I saw last night was Brett Baer and Martha McCallum trying to control the debate. Fox News trying to control the debate. Far too many candidates up there to be saying, everybody gets 30 seconds and we're going to ask some questions only to certain choice select people on the debate stage will decide what is important for people to know. We'll cut you off. We'll interrupt you. We'll ring the bell while you're in the midst, even of your closing remarks, which you also only have seconds to deliver. My takeaway from that is our institutions, say, for instance, corporate news media like Fox News or political parties like the Republican Party are in serious need of being overhauled and reformed. We need to reform conservative news media. We need to reform social media. We need to reform the political parties and how they engage with not just candidates, but also the voting public. Those who are going to be actually deciding, it would seem, or we thought, need to have the information. We need to listen to what the candidates are actually saying. If we don't have enough time for them to give their remarks in minutes, it has to be in half-minute increments, measured in seconds at a time, then we're not taking this seriously enough. I dare say last night's debate, not having been able to watch the Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson interview at all, last night's debate made Trump look very good for having skipped it because it was frustrating. It was frustrating that they were able to talk over each other, but then what do you expect? You try to shove 10 gallons worth of content and ideas and proposals and positions and character into a one-gallon bucket, and you're going to get nine gallons overflowing, spilling everywhere, making a huge mess. And that's exactly what last night's debate was like. It was like somebody trying to pour 10 gallons of 
orange juice into a one-gallon bucket. It was a mess. And to some extent, it is the fault of the debate participants that they don't have more control over this. But then what are they told? They're told behind the scenes, if you want the nomination, if you want funding, if you want support, if you want airtime, if you want anybody to help you and to not torpedo your candidacy right now, you're going to do exactly what we tell you to do. We're not going to take any guff from you. I, for one, am sick of it. I think it's awful. I think it's broken. I think it's dysfunctional. I think it is very bad for all of us that this is the way debates are moderated. The way that it used to be wasn't necessarily perfect, but by golly, you were able to get the measure of a man along the lines of enduring quality when it's whoever is best at repeating most believably the 30-second soundbite talking point, but if they had another minute, they would completely hang themselves. What we get is what we've been getting. And how's that working out for us? Some will say, oh, but that's going to be boring, right? People are going to tune out. Yeah, great, fine, so what? Maybe politics needs to be a little more boring and a little more substantive. Maybe it's too exciting based on how polarized we're getting, based on how impossible it's getting for us to have conversations with each other face-to-face. Maybe it could stand to be a little more boring, a little more substantive, a little more thought-provoking and thoughtful and less like a WWE match. I think Fox News and the Republican Party wanted to have the Trumpiness without the Trump. And what they got was nine gallons of orange juice in a giant puddle surrounding a one-gallon bucket. This is not the way to go about it. And that's not moderation. That's control. And it sends a very weak signal to the voting public who are expecting better. They're expecting more. And to be quite frank, we need to be challenged and rise to the occasion. It's insulting that the folks at Fox News and the folks in the Republican Party who run the thing and make these decisions, the folks running these political campaigns, think this is what we want, think that this is what the people crave, but it feels like bread and circuses. We sat down and we watched it, but by golly, my biggest takeaway was that the Republican Party needs overhauled in how they approach these debates. And the solution is not to have the people who fired Tucker Carlson and took away his primetime show be the ones controlling the debate of our Republican candidates. No, no, thank you. I don't trust Fox News and most Republicans and conservatives in this country, I dare say, have lost confidence in Fox News as well because of what they did with Tucker Carlson. Now, the flip side is you get an Elon Musk and the ex-social media platform, the anti-social media platform, And for everybody who's still in Twitter jail, perpetually, with trumped-up charges, we're going to have to wait on some other independent outlet to show clips, because otherwise we can't watch it. We can't see it. We can't hear it. We don't know what was said by Trump and Tucker Carlson. And that also needs to be reformed. It's not enough that Elon Musk bought the platform. If you're still on there, well, good for you. But that I am still not on there tells me that there are probably a lot of people in the same boat who are not on there. 
You have to say mea culpa, mea culpa. I mean, at least in the case of last night, the debate moderators so-called are going to say the quiet part out loud. We're going to regain control, they say at a certain point. We're going to regain control, retake control. When you all hear the bell, raise your hands. And kudos to my man, Ron DeSantis, for saying, hey, we are not kindergartners. We're not preschoolers here. What is all this about raise your hand if you support X, Y, and Z? Now, by golly, let us talk. Let us debate. If you're going to have a debate, let it be a debate. But that wasn't a debate last night. That was suppression of a debate for all of us to see. And what that communicated to me is that Fox News wants to be your president for all intents and purposes. I'm not good with that. Speaking personally, we need better than that. We need to do better than that. We need to be better than that. We need to expect better than that. Dare I say it, we need to demand better than that. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.